Edwards Deming went to post-war Japan in the late 1940s to help with the census. While there, he built relationships with some of the main manufacturers in the region, helping them understand the value of building quality into a product as part of the production process, thus lowering time to market, eliminating rework, and saving company resources. In his 1982 book, Out of the Crisis, Deming explained in detail why Japan was ahead of the American manufacturing industry and what to do about it. His 14 points on quality management helped revitalize American industry. Unknowingly, he laid the foundation for DevOps 40 years later. Eli Goldratt published The Goal in 1984, focusing on the theory of constraints, the idea that a process can only go as fast as its slowest part. In fictionalized novel form, Goldratt was able to reach a wide audience who would utilize the theory to help find bottlenecks or constraints within production that were holding back the entire system. Once again, the theories espoused in the gold were a precursor to the DevOps movement 40 years later. In January 2013, 40 years after Deming and Goldratt reshaped the manufacturing processes in America, Gene Kim published The Phoenix Project. He used the same format as Goldratt, telling the story in a fictionalized novel format with characters who were easily identifiable within the software manufacturing process from a manager's point of view. The Phoenix Project is now one of the most important books in the industry and is used as a starting point for companies interested in participating in a DevOps transformation. It's now six years later, 2019. Gene's new book, The Unicorn Project, will be released at the upcoming DevOps Enterprise Summit in Las Vegas on October 28th. This new book has an interesting premise. What was going on with the software development team in the Phoenix Project as the management team was flailing to get the project back on track? It's a novel approach to have parallel timelines in separate books looking at the same project. In this broadcast, Gene and I talk about how the Unicorn Project aligns with the Phoenix Project, the overlap in the storylines, and why he chose to speak for software developers in this iteration of the story. Do a quick review of the Phoenix Project, which is probably already on your bookshelf, and then listen in as we discuss using Deming, Goldratt, and Kim as the foundation of the principles of the DevOps movement. This is the DevSecOps Podcast. The DevSecOps Podcast is supported by OWASP. Organizers of Melbourne's OWASP AppSec Day 2019, Australia's biggest software security conference. And by All Day DevOps, the world's largest DevOps conference with over 30,000 attendees, live online, November 6th. You and I were talking a little bit about uh, your new book, The Unicorn Project. It, it, one of the things that I liked about it and uh, that I think other people will appreciate is the parallel timeline that you were <laughs> able to establish between the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project. Where did that come from? Well, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's that narrative tool has been used before. Yeah, I think most famously in like Ender Shadow, right? Uh, written from uh, uh, a different perspective as uh, 
you know, the protagonist of the Ender's Game. But anyhow, I think the real motivation to uh, write the Unicorn Project was this sense that uh, these incredible problems still remain. In other words, uh, you know, someone could embrace fully all the principles and patterns uh, espoused in uh, the Phoenix Project. They can do, uh, adopt all the uh, lessons that are being modeled by the DevOps Enterprise community. But I think one of the problems is that there's still all these, um, maybe the lack of recognition of all the invisible structures required to make developers productive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, the, the crushing weight of technical debt that, you know, in most large complex organizations uh, has been building up for decades. You know, I think there's also this other problem that uh, I think if, even when leadership really wants to fully support it, what exact support is needed by leadership <laughs> is, is still ambiguous. Um, I think there's this third thing that, uh, that for me was very eye-opening uh, and something I want to explore in the Unicorn Project was just how DevOps sort of identified this big problem of trying to get code to where it needed to be, which is specifically in production so that customers are getting value. Uh, there's this other parallel universe, this kind of orthogonal problem set uh, but it's not code, it's the data. Uh, and so there's you know, all this data about our customers that are locked up into these systems of record where it's just impossible to get to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of the frontline developers uh, to use in their daily work. And you know, it's often trapped in data warehouses. It's uh, trapped in these very precarious uh, ETLs. And so I want to help illuminate, uh, shine light on that and uh, uh, just show how technologists can solve that problem just like we did for DevOps and code. When you set Maxine as the main character in the book, did you pattern her after anybody? Did you have a model in mind? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in fact, uh, uh, the, the, the book is very much modeled after the DevOps enterprise community. All of those speakers that really show the kind of heroic uh, characteristics it takes to take on a, a very powerful ancient order <laughs> that uh, can protect its own interests, uh, you know, whether it's a functional silo or uh, whether it's dev or ops or project management or security. Um, but also um, it's modeled after some of the, the people who've influenced me most in the functional programming uh, community. You know, people like uh, Mike Nygaard uh, who just have a clear way to view things. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, I think the book, the Unicorn Project is very much kind of aimed at the, the, the developer uh, who is, uh, you know, whose productivity uh, all of our hopes, dreams, and aspirations hinge upon. Um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, I can, there's a very large word cloud of people that uh, Maxine, the, the hero, is modeled after, for sure. So when you're looking at this to... Uh, oh, and by the way, I mentioned Mike Nygaard. Um, I'm also thinking about Cornelia Davis. Uh, Scott Havens, all these people who have taught me kind of a better way to think when it comes to programming. Yeah, it's it's finding those type of people that resonate with you makes it work, right? Absolutely. That's, yeah. The um, When we're talking about the characters now, for people that read The Phoenix Project, they were used to thinking of the analogy of the manufacturing plant, like was set up with the goal and things like that. You've actually changed that now that it it's the developer mindset, and you really actually get into the weeds on on the developer side of it. Yeah, yeah. You say in the weeds, and it, it's a uh, it's funny you use those words because something I did a lot of um, uh, intense, um, I would say, soul searching or like uh, you know a lot of thinking uh, about you know who is this book for, mm-hmm. and you know I think the Phoenix Project. I mean, really, the audience was the technology leader, 
Uh, and, you know, maybe if we did a really good job, right, that book would be passed on to that person's boss, right? Uh, you, know, um, you know, whether it's the CFO or the business leader. Um, and as, as much as I love that audience uh, in the Unicorn Project, especially even in the late stages of editing, was like, who is this book for? Right. And uh, was, is it for the developer or, or is it for that technology leader? Um, and when I say technology leader, I count in the extreme, it's, you know, the person ultimately accountable for all the technology functions, right? Whether it's a CIO or CTO, whatever. Um, and, you know, two and a half weeks before the, <laughs> the, the deadline where the book had to be uh, sent to print, you know, finally decided, all right, it is really for the developer. Um, and, you know, again, this on, in the hopes that if the book is good enough, it will get passed to the technology leaders and maybe even to, you know, the, the technology leader's boss. Um, but that freedom really did afford it to afford me to double down on functional programming, uh, which I think is truly a better way to think. Um, and, you know, talk about architectures. I mean, when we talk about the invisible structures that make developers either incredibly productive or incredibly unproductive, I mean, really that's, you know, that's architecture, right? It's the invisible structures that allow developers to do the daily work. And to be able to talk in more detail about, you know, what are those things that enable fast feedback, flow, and joy? What are those, uh, uh, you know, what does architecture look like in the small and in the very large? Um, so it was actually a decision that I was very reticent to fully commit to, but one that was ultimately, um, I think, allowed me to jump more fully into, as you say, the weeds, but something I think is very, very important that ultimately every technology leader needs to know about. It, it is. I agree with you there. One of the unifying themes between the Phoenix uh, and the Unicorn Projects is still using the theory of constraints and bottlenecks as one of the showstoppers yeah. in the process. No, for sure. In fact, um, uh, you know, there's a, I love, I'm a big fan of the Kurt Vonnegut shape of stories uh, talk you know, where he says so there's only a finite number of uh, shapes of stories, right? You have the hero's journey where uh, something terrible happens and then, you know, the, the hero has to climb out and seek uh, enlightenment and wisdom. You know, there's a, there's a tragic ending. There's a, you know, there's a certain uh, number of shapes and, and someone uh, in the review process, a bunch of people noted that, wow, a lot of, answers come very easy to our hero Maxine in the unicorn project. Whereas in the Phoenix project, Bill, our hero had to, you know, solve every puzzle. Right. <laughs> and um, I, I think it's because it is a different shape of story. I think the role of Maxine is to be able to see the difference between awesome, like transcendently awesome and the horrible, bad, you know, um, awfulness. Right. And so her job is to witness that and be able to, to appreciate the good and recoil from the bad, right? She doesn't need any puzzling out to figure that out, mm -hmm. right? So certain things I think can uh, uh, become very obvious. One of them is uh, the notion, notion of like the constraint moving. You know, she has a very intuitive feel that, uh, hey, it starts with um, often deployment and then testing and then um, uh, architecture. <laughs> and then ultimately it is about like how many developers, you know, um, and good ideas can we come up with uh, to achieve all the goals and aspirations of the organizations that we serve. So, um, yes, you're right. Theory of constraints definitely is uh, uh, kind of guides the story along. But uh, I think 
unlike Bill, who had to really search for where the constraint was, I think Maxine brings with her a decade of experience that just helps her come into it where it is. Yeah, I just wrote down that note about Maxine talking that she has the intuitive sense because she has the experience to back it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so um, uh, modeling the book in my head uh, for almost three years now, it's always been, you know, the story of rebellion, just like in the DevOps enterprise community. Uh, these people sort of taking on the ancient powerful order. Uh, but there's a couple other kind of things in my head that I wanted to model the book after, you know, so it's the rebellion in Star Wars, it's uh, red shirts from Star Trek, you know, it's people doing the work, <laughs> not about the bridge crew, <laughs> but people like doing the work, um, you know, Hogan's heroes. <laughs> um, and uh, also the movie Brazil, where the, the number one fugitive in the movie Brazil is the rogue air conditioner repairman who breaks mm -hmm. into people's apartments and fixes their air conditioning because central services won't do it for them. <laughs> so, so I think that's really the, uh, um, you know, that's kind of the, kind of the way the book was shaped. And um, uh, so Maxine has experience and the intuition and it isn't until she meets kind of the rebellion led by uh, Kurt uh, where, you know, that's sort of the magical combination it takes right. to make these things happen. You have the, the person who knows how, and then you have the person who's, is politically savvy enough <laughs> to figure out how to either make the right friends or just simply hide the effort. Oh, there has to be both sides to that or else it can't work. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I love that sort of duality, right? That, mm -hmm. uh, oh, and, and you know, for your amusement, um, I think Maxine is kind of the lawful good and Kurt is certainly the uh, chaotic good, <laughs> right? Willing to bend the rules, yeah. right? To uh, help make the right things happen. I think it's interesting, too, that you placed a woman as the central character of the book, knowing the problems that we're having in the tech industry in general. You have several strong women characters in here. Yeah, I, um, I don't know when uh, I decided that, but uh, I think it was around 2015 where there was this kind of figure that happened in the Phoenix Project timeline, the person who allegedly caused the payroll outage, right? And uh, it was a software developer named Max. <laughs> and that, that, this is, I think it was only one or two sentences in it that was alluded to uh, yeah. when uh, they're trying to figure out what caused the payroll outage. And uh, I just thought it would be great to have the main character be Maxine and actually have it be um, a well-intended change. And, you know, essentially Maxine is being set up as the, um, you know, the fall guy, right? The person who's being... I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, the opening of the book is... <laughs> You get your head handed to her on a plate. <laughs> There's a line that it actually came from uh, Dr. Steven Spear. He said, uh, uh, I put right into Maxine's uh, mouth. It was, uh, you're saying this was caused by a technology problem and a human error. Are you saying that I'm the human error? When, uh, it, was, it was actually the co-creation of uh, Chris, the VP of engineering and uh, <laughs> Maxine. Uh, and I actually got angry for her when I was reading that. <laughs> right. In fact, so did a lot of the reviewers. They're like, why, why isn't she like immediately quitting or shopping her resume around? And actually, right. Uh, right. some people had like significant mental um, uh, dissonance. And so I had to actually add that just to um, uh, give people uh, a way to better relate to Maxine. But uh, yeah, in, in the unicorn project, there are these, uh, we're calling it the five ideals, the five ideals. Uh, just like the Phoenix Project had the three types of work, I'm sorry, the three ways, the four types of work, uh, the five ideals are really meant to be the kind of the construct to elevate these things. And one of them is psychological safety. The fourth ideal is 
psychological safety and uh, just really showing the contrast. Uh, again, everything is clear when, you know, we can contrast it to, you know, we know what DevOps cultures look like, you know, they're generative. We seek ideas, we seek novelty, we uh, train messengers to tell bad news. And essentially that opening scene in the book is like the opposite of that is where everyone's afraid to tell bad news. Everyone is afraid of being blamed and even the kind of revolving uh, <laughs> the people getting fired for, you know, uh, things going wrong. Right. I mean, who wants to propose a new idea when, you know, you can get called out and essentially, you know, uh, be blamed <laughs> All that when you're on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, hopefully it does evoke that sense of, um, uh, feeling of being genuinely unjust, and I, I'm I'm hoping that you know for people that are in environments like that, that maybe this book can become a, a way to serve sort of in a maybe disarming way or in a safe way to be able to say, man, isn't that terrible? And uh, huh, maybe in an internal book club, be able to say, is there anything about the book that resonates with our daily experience? <laughs> um. The uh, your Dwayne character, who is on part of the project, yeah. actually, as a joke, says, hey, let's call this the Unicorn Project. <laughs> it, was it a joke when you first started? Is that where that came from? Yeah, so that was um, that scene was also alluded to in the Fiends Project, where uh, I think Bill was uh, uh, despairing at the fact that developers were so whimsical and, <laughs> and the, the project names were so different than what... Uh, I think most people in corporate IT are used to. Um, and uh, so it was fun to sort of have as, you know, Maggie, the, essentially the business leader with the vision, right, to basically um, sponsor and fully protect this initiative. Um, you know, uh, say we need a name for this project. And uh, I love the sort of the, the whole sort of <laughs> whimsical names that come out of it, like Narwhal and um, uh, Unikitty. <laughs> <laughs> unicorn and so forth. And by the way, you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of strong female characters. And I think that also is my attempt to, uh, uh, pay tribute to the DevOps enterprise community. I mean, you take a look at these people leading these transformations that are, you know, I, I think it's impossible to overstate the value that they create and the amount of personal jeopardy they put themselves in, right? Uh, and a lot of them are led by women, like almost a, a half. So, you know, I think uh, that was really inspired by just seeing all the experiences reports coming out of the DevOps enterprise community. Oh, and but the number one villain is still Sarah. I was going there <laughs> right now. Sarah is still in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so Jeffrey Snover, technical fellow at Microsoft, uh, <laughs> gave me this line. It's like, uh, yeah, chainsaws, great at cutting down trees and also potentially, you know, cutting off limbs, right? I mean, that is that is Sarah, right? Uh, uh, very strong. I actually one. made a note to myself. Sarah is still scowling and she is back in space. Yeah, <laughs> right, with powerful allies. Um, yeah, I uh, I love that one of the <laughs> reviewer comments, uh, uh, it was actually one of my favorites, was just when I thought I couldn't despise Sarah more. <laughs> I just thought that it was, uh, it was one of the best compliments uh, given to me during the review process. And one of the things I'm really excited to do is actually work with Elizabeth Hendrickson, who's a VP of engineering at Pivotal. And, uh, she had brought up this just fascinating notion of just uh, describing in more detail how do we communicate 
with people like Sarah. And, and what did technology do so bad to her that made her the way she is? <laughs> and it caused, um, uh, we just had this wonderful discussion, just kind of trying to imagine what her bookshelf looked like and what, what was her career arc and where did she get burned so badly and what causes her to behave the way she does? <laughs> Wouldn't it be fascinating to have a third book from Sarah's point of view? You're not the first person that mentioned it. And I just, uh, I'm actually hoping to um, do a podcast with her just to fully explore that. And um, actually one of the promises I did make was to actually write a scene from Sarah's perspective, um, uh, which in, in a, I, I'm not proud of this at all, but Elizabeth Hendrickson, one of my mentors and people I idolize, she said, um, so tell me more about Sarah's background. <laughs> and I, <laughs> laugh because I have I've written the background and resume of almost every one of the primary characters oh. in the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project but I never made one for Sarah <laughs> and it was just I was thunderstruck I, I was gobsmacked and it just showed to me she was just a very convenient villain um, right. based on someone I know <laughs> but you had to think that through in order to develop that character what is the background uh, well, uh, thanks to Elizabeth's goading, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think she's a brilliant uh, merchandiser. I think she knows uh, intuitively what's wrong with the parts and limited business. Uh, she knows kind of um, what is going wrong in terms of the presentation of, uh, you know, goods within the store. You know, intuitively, I think she understands kind of how the strategy needs to change. But, you know, I think she must have been uh, burned by a lot of technology initiatives before. Um, and, you know, I also think she spent a lot of time in mergers and acquisitions, <laughs> right? which I think encourages a certain <laughs> a mindset and uh, uh, behavior and a belief that, you know, people are truly fungible and replaceable. <laughs> um, and uh, we even went to sort of brainstorm about what's on our bookshelf. And I think the number one book is, uh, you know, who moved my cheese? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like strategy books, but uh, you know, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call her a good people leader as we think of them now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, she is ruth she is ruthless and great at accountability, right? She wants to hold people accountable. I was still happy to see Brent there though, even though right. he's a minimal part now. I wouldn't say I, I actually use that analogy from the Phoenix Project a lot. Who is your Brent? And everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's that one old timer who knows everything. He knows where all the bodies are buried. Everybody goes to him. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, my reaction for, uh, you know, is Brent a minimal character? I don't think so. I mean, he's one of the core members of the rebellion. And, it's so clear that the rebellion is actually trying to protect Brent and try to give Brent some semblance of a life back. And for me, it was really fun to be able to, you know, speculate and explore kind of what are Brent's goals, dreams, ambitions, and mm -hmm. aspirations. And uh, uh, that was actually really fun to play out. And <laughs> it's also fun to paint more sort of these kind of battle scenes with Brent front and center <laughs> one of my favorite scenes is uh in the phoenix rollout you know, the catast you know the beginnings of the release that was you know absolutely the catastrophe that it was having uh, not only the database uh issue and migration go wrong but 
uh, also having all the prices disappear from the e-commerce site and the mobile app <laughs> due to a bad upload. The visual thing that you did with Brandon that scene though was to have him staring off into space, knowing that his mind is just going a million miles an hour and nobody else knows right. what he's doing. <laughs> exactly right. Um, yeah, and I, I think uh, something I would have liked to explore more, but we just ran into um, word count problems was uh, just to what extent, I mean, I think what Maxine sees is that, I think what she's most offended by in that you know, mini episode was the fact that this bad data upload problem has happened before has <laughs> yeah. happened many times. And I think this deeply offends her sense of uh, her sensibilities. Right. And uh, you know, I think she says, this is, we're going to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right. We're going to catch, you know, uh, malformed CSV files, um, you know, before they get into our production database, we're going to catch when uh, the wrong number of rows are there. <laughs> and, uh, just you know that that scene is actually modeled after something that uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren uh, did to me <laughs> when when uh, she handed me this uh, CSV file with the byte order mark. Uh, this is uh, many years ago in the State of DevOps report, where you know, none of the fields looked right because uh, uh, the first field had this uh, uh, whatever the byte order mark character is, <laughs> and so that took uh, that took four hours, you know, for me to figure out why why is uh, why are the column markers <laughs> not lining up as they should be? So uh, based on a real story. Well, the real story there too is, wasn't it uh, the configuration file was missing the database, the correct database connection? Oh, that's another one. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and, and I think that's the, uh, one of the things I really want to highlight is that uh, this is, we have all these, initiatives, whether it's on machine learning, big data, whatever. And I'm not sure if people fully understand that these are inherently and intrinsically and inseparably software initiatives and you need world-class software practices. Yeah. And it just, uh, it, it frightens me that some of these are like $50 million programs where some things aren't even in version control. <laughs> that, that terrifies me. So uh, you know, I'm, one of my aspirations for the book is that, you know, people realize that uh, these data initiatives do need every uh, one of the practices that we've explored in the state of DevOps report right there because it's software. <laughs> one of the things that Josh Corman and I used to talk about quite a bit is the horizon lines. And you brought that up, horizon one, two, and three in here as oh, yeah. a critical part of the book. Can you explain horizon lines to people that haven't thought about it before? Yeah. So uh, that's actually a, uh, it was actually invented the, the three horizons. Um, so that was actually, uh, I think first put into the literature by uh, McKinsey, but was brought to the forefront by Joffrey Moore in his book uh, zones to win. And so uh, this is embodied in the fifth ideal of customer focus. And, and very briefly horizon one is you know, if you're a multi-billion-dollar organization, um, you know the main lines of business are, are the Horizon One businesses, um, and this is where you. Uh, well, let me talk about the characteristics of each, and then Horizon Two are the kind of the um, uh, the businesses that hope to be Horizon businesses, and then Horizon Three are the the new exploratory, innovative parts where, you know, uh, we don't even know if there's market fit technology fit. Uh, we don't know what the risks and the market risk really are. 
Um, so most startups really are Horizon 3 efforts, right? Most startups would die to be Horizon 2, where you're generating 10 to $100 million of revenue. Um, and then Horizon 1 are the, uh, the hallmarks of that is that, you know, you need greatness in daily operations, uh, everything from supply chain to development to, uh, you know, to product operations to sales and marketing. Um, and the, the, for me, the amazing contrast is that what we need for Horizon 1 is so different than Horizon 3. Right, uh, Horizon Three is all about learning, uh, and Horizon One tends to be all about compliance. Um, and so, uh, I think so much of the kind of the culture misfit uh, that we see in the DevOps enterprise community is exactly that clash. Right, is Horizon One and Two battling Horizon One? And uh, in the book, Sarah is defending Horizon One, um, and uh, Maxine and Kurt, right, they're trying to champion uh, Horizons Two and Three. As I was reading through that, Gene, one of the things that I, I started to do mentally is how does each character align with the horizon line? And could we define a character by horizon line? That's a great question. In fact, um, but if I can just, before we go there, I've yeah. been mentioning these things about five ideals. I just I want to enumerate them so that uh, uh, we can have it in one place. Horizon, I'm sorry, the first idea is about locality and simplicity. So that's primarily about how decisions are made and how the code is organized. Uh, the second ideal is focus, flow, and joy. So done right, you know, work should allow us to be focused and have a sense of flow and have this sort of sense of transcendent joy of doing work. And I think anyone who's done coding knows what that feels like, and we uh, we actively seek it. The third ideal is um, improvement of daily work. In other words, prioritizing improvement of daily work even over daily work itself. Fourth ideal was psychological safety. And the fifth ideal is customer focus. And customer focus is, and I think that this really came into focus for me with Chris O'Malley, the CEO of CompuWare, when he said, you know, if a customer isn't willing to pay for it, then it really isn't a core. It isn't core. It's really context. So that's another Joffrey Moore model. Context, core is what creates durable, lasting business advantage. Context is everything else. So it might be mission critical, but it's still context. Um, and I, I think to your question, kind of how do the characters align there? Yeah, I think one of the things I, in successive drafts in the Unicorn Project, Chris, the VP of R&D, became increasingly weaker and weaker. And I, and I kind of like that because he's essentially trying to defend status quo, defend silos, defend kind of the, the annual planning process and allowed Kurt to be, and, and Maxine, to you know, rest more control from him. Uh, so I think Chris kind of embodies the, the way we've organized our work over the last 20, 30 years. Um, I think uh, Kurt and Maxine, I should say Maxine and Kurt, uh, they really are the ones pioneering new ways of working that really represent kind of how do the startups organize themselves just naturally uh, in Horizon 3? And you know, how should they be organizing themselves in large complex organizations? And I think ultimately those things will take over Horizon One. I mean, it's clearly, as John Smart from uh, Deloitte, formerly of Barclays, says, this is a way of to deliver better value, safer, happier, safer, faster, and happier. I think it's DevOps. This is inexorable, <laughs> right? This is a, a constellation of characters. This is what it takes to get us from here to there. 
You know, you've been talking a lot of nice names, you know. <laughs> uh, and one of the, the reasons that you can talk with the type of people that you do is because of the DevOps Enterprise Summit. Now, just a short backstory on that. I, I talk about DOES and I talk about the Phoenix Project in just about every presentation that I do because it seems to me that the Phoenix Project is what led to DOES. Mm. If I if I can follow the timeline. Yeah, no, I know that's that's absolutely right. I mean, to fully describe that narrative, um, you know, the reason that DevOps Enterprise came about was this desire to have a conference, not for the unicorns, but for the horses, large complex organization that weren't Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft. You know, I actually tried to get this started inside of the O'Reilly Velocity Conference or any any conference, yeah. and. Uh, uh, wasn't able to do that, but you know, uh, we got close, but it was really, um, I was actually going through back through my notes, researching the book and looking at the tweets from the 2014 DevOps Enterprise Conference. And it was, uh, several people said, well, I'll remember the conference because there was just nothing like it. It was the first time, right. That we could see, you know, these, uh, some of the most well-known brands across every industry vertical, just talking about the same problem. And, uh, the, Unexpected side effect for me was that uh, it was this incredible way to, in my mind, meet the pioneers, you know, the uh, the people who were courageous enough, right, to even try doing this in an organization that mostly didn't want to, right? These are organizations with thousands of engineers, sometimes over ten thousand engineers, right, who wanted to do nothing and have nothing to do with it. So I just think that that community of are people with a phenomenal sense of uh, judgment around both technology and um, leadership and organizational politics uh, and architecture, right? And I say architecture, not in the small, but in the large. How do we need to organize our systems to enable developers to get their work done, <laughs> right? And, uh, and I think uh, that's really the what motivates them, which is, you know, we have goals. You know, how do we best organize ourselves and designer system so that people can actually get what they need done, done. I'm still hearing, hearing the argument uh, in the field that we're too big to do DevOps, that the idea that an enterprise the size of Nike or Walt Disney, they're <laughs> almost unicorns by being able to do it. And I think that's the value that I get when I go to does each year is to be able to talk to people like Courtney Mm -hmm. uh, like Paula Thrasher, like Rosalind, uh, that are re really actually doing it at scale. Uh, that's the value that I perceive for w what I get there. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to me. Um, if you take a look at, uh, I think it's Google 2014, uh, I think they had 15,000 developers, right? That was, uh, you know, that's some years ago, but that's about the size of, you know, some of these organizations that we're talking about, you know, Capital One is about 15,000 developers. It is, it's obvious to me, right? Uh, and I, I can't say that I can conclusively prove this, but just intuitively what it says, like when, you know, the same management structures and the same architectural patterns that the tech giants created, you know, whether it's, you know, eBay, LinkedIn, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Spotify, whatever, right? I mean, you know, uh, it was forged out of the need to be able to coordinate the activities of thousands and thousands of developers or tens of thousands of developers. And that was primarily the domain of the tech giants, but now it's the problem being faced every day by every 
organ, you know, every large organization on the planet. <laughs> and, and so and to me, there's an equivalence there that uh, to try to distinguish kind of which ones can only be done by the tech giants and which ones can be done by the largest brands in every industry vertical. I mean, <laughs> it's just obvious to me that those two are one and the same. It's interesting you talk about that because I, I think that the patterns that you're describing are consistent. 80% of it is consistent no matter what company yeah. you're doing. It's the 20% that, you know, that's, that's not what we're dealing with here. What are the patterns that are going to allow a company to do this? You know, I think you know, that's a great point. And I think there actually is a very big um, difference between uh, the tech giants that were born in the late 80s, the 90s, and early in the 2000s um, is the amount of technical debt they carry. Uh, That's horrendous, yeah. Yeah, it, it, right. And, and, and so, you know, one of, the, one of the things that actually it was Dr. McKirsten who uh, brought this front and center for me was that every tech giant has almost been killed by technical debt. At every one of, every one of those companies uh, essentially did a, a stand down, a feature freeze, you know, for sometimes like a year, right? Uh, you know, like Microsoft, the security stand down after the summer of worms um, um, because they knew that they had gotten the position where it got so dangerous to change things that they couldn't change things any longer. And they had, had to refactor, re-architect, re-platform, et cetera. The ones that survived were the ones that did that. The ones that didn't are the ones like Nokia. And so there's a phenomenal book by Risto Slasma, the chairman of Nokia, and I, that's featured in the book, um, where the chairman of Nokia, or who became the chairman of Nokia, he said in 2010 when he learned that the when the when he learned that the Sipian OS build times was 48 hours, he knew in a moment that all that the platform of which near-term profitability and long-term viability hinged upon was a mirage. <laughs> it's like there's no way that if it takes 48 hours for a developer to know whether it worked or didn't work, you know could that be viable? Um, and that's what actually led them to go all in on Windows Mobile, just because they had they knew that Symbian OS couldn't take it to them. And ultimately, they uh, that led to the 98, 93% decimation of uh, the market cap of Nokia. So uh, this is my long way of getting to the point where essentially all of these firms declared technical bankruptcy. And I think that's a decision that has been deferred or postponed in large complex organizations. And I think what we're seeing in the DevOps enterprise community is the need to be able to say, all right, it's not acceptable that we run on an SAP instance that is 20 years old, <laughs> that we have 45 different warehouse management systems that, you know, we, we're carrying around decades of this tundra of technical debt that is just slowing us down. So I think that's kind of the, something I'm, I'm hoping over the next couple of years to really inject directly into the center of the DevOps enterprise programming. And that really starts, uh, you know, in, in two weeks <laughs> where we're going to see some, uh, some direct discussions around that. Um, I, I hope so. I mean, because that is the big elephant in the room that hasn't had the correct focus yet. Everybody talks about technical debt and talks about legacy systems. Yeah. And, and legacy isn't bad. It's just that, you know, can we have a, an unflinching conversation of when the way something's been built or the platform it runs on is directly impeding the achievement of the most important goals of the company? You know, often that is, you know, it's an architecture that was great 20, 30 years ago, but is supremely unsuited for, you know, the conditions that uh, the business 
is challenged by today. Are you, do you have a focus on uh, the, uh, the technical debt in this year's does? Yeah, in fact, um, there's uh, uh, at least two of them uh, that are going to be on the plenary stage that I think are spectacular examples of this. One of them is Scott Pru. Um, and yeah, he and Eric had a lot of ideas of what they wanted to present. I'm like, nope, this time I want you to talk about the engineering you did. And, and I think that the business frame is, it couldn't be simpler, is that there's been a tenfold increase in transactions um, at CSG. In turn, if you were to overlay the cost of doing those transactions, if that were to increase by 10x, right, the company would not be making money. So what are the incredible things that they did to re-engineer the platforms that run the most critical business processes and the revenue generating processes at CSG so that they could actually scale to what the business needed, I think are some of those heroic achievements that I've ever seen. Uh, Scott Havens, who was uh, director of... Um, uh, engineering at Walmart uh, will be describing what he did to move the entire supply chain management systems at Walmart, the largest company in the world, mm -hmm. to this more functional uh, style architecture to dramatically reduce the cost of it, make it more reliable, safer. Um, I think it's just magnificent and it's going to be even better than the presentation he gave in London. So I think those are, Oh, and, and then the, the talk from Adidas, uh, from Fernando Cronago. Oh, and, Fernando's coming. Great. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think all of these are just, um, these are talks about architecture that, that fundamentally change the way that how teams have to work together to create value. Um, so I, I'm really, really excited about that. Um, as we're thinking about does, what else should people be aware of that's going to happen? What other ideas did you run with this year? We have two talks. There's a focus on, well, let's go the other way. We actually have a talk where all of the big four auditors will be, uh, uh, on a panel with me saying about uh, basically busting the myths of uh, whether DevOps can be done in an audible, compliant, secure way. <laughs> so that's a, I think that's kind of a watershed moment for the industry, right? To be able to have every auditor just uh, say unequivocally, right? It can, right? I don't care who tells you otherwise, you know, take it from us. Uh, there's uh, another focus around organizational learnings. Andre Mart Dr. Andre Martin, uh, Chief Learning Officer from Google will be presenting. Uh, Previously, he was at Target and then uh, before that, Nike. And then um, Dave Almeida, Dr. Dave Almeida from, uh, he's a chief people officer from Kronos, will be uh, presenting on Kronos' amazing journey to, uh, for, for five plus years, become one of the best places to work. Yeah, you know, Gene, one of the big things too at the conference is I thought one of the biggest responses last year was the book giveaways that uh, you put together. That was packed for two hours. Yeah, right. So the, the Unicorn Project comes out on November 26th, but we did a special print run to basically make sure that every attendee uh, will get a copy. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> so that'll be great fun, and which I just find very delightful just because I would say the Unicorn Project is really inspired by and dedicated to the achievements of the DevOps enterprise community. And I'm just, my largest aspirations are that people read it and are dazzled by it and then realize, oh, this isn't some hallucination or uh, wild, you know, this isn't some mad dream. <laughs> this is actually, you know, what is already happening, maybe even in their organizations already, and they just need to find those pioneers and uh, support them. This is the DevSecOps Podcast. The DevSecOps Podcast is supported by OWASP, 
organizers of Melbourne's OWASP AppSec Day 2019, Australia's biggest software security conference. And by All Day DevOps, the world's largest DevOps conference with over 30,000 attendees, live online, November 6th.